Well, good morning and welcome. How's that for a contrast? I do want to say, though, right at the outset, how good it is to have you all here in this space as we watched it evolve. We kind of dreamed that this day would happen sometime. We knew not when. And the day has come. And I'm delighted. And, you know, the, if you know anything about church growth, you know that once a sanctuary is about 80% full, you have to expand um, or else you will start to decline. And I hope and I pray and I say, please, please keep coming. And if we end up sitting on the floor and heaving out at the seams, we'll find another place to worship. But let's keep worshiping together because this room is designed to be physically at the center of this building. Worship, our uh, lifting our hearts up together right in the middle of this building on this campus is, uh, sets the, the foundation, sets the tone, sets our, uh, the agenda for our community and the rest of all that we do. It reminds us that even when we're in the classroom or whether we're in a meeting or whatever it is that we're doing within the building or in the wider campus, it comes out of this heart of worship, of connection with Jesus. So when the, when the term papers come fast and furious and the reading is piling up, come anyway, because here you will find your center. And we will understand uh, if you've needed to take this hour to be here, 45 minutes, it's worth it. So I'm glad to see you today. Those of you who are visitors with us, you are welcome here. We hope that you will come again. I'm looking forward to this year. It feels already to me like something is stirring, and I find that uh, quite exciting. I was not so excited to be preaching today, uh, not, not because I don't love you all, and uh, not because I don't love the Word of God and enjoy sharing it, but because the, the last sermon I heard was last Thursday night. <laughs> and, if, <laughs> and if you were there... You will know that it was probably one of the best sermons that most of us in the house have ever heard. And, uh, and after a sermon like that, sometimes all there can be is silence for a long time. <laughs> However, I know that I have responsibilities as your president uh, to deliver something from the word. So I said to God, you must have something for us for this week. <laughs> yeah, exactly, that's what I said. <laughs> and, um, and this passage came to me, and I said, oh, I can't do that. It's going to be something else, if that's ever happened to you. It happens to me often. Um, and it came at me from a completely different direction. And I looked it up, and I thought, no, I can't do that. So I set it aside again, and a third time it came from, again, a completely different direction. So I decided I would sit and wrestle for a while with the text. Part of my resistance was because I referred to this text uh, last term when I spoke about, are we hypocrites? And I kind of admitted that we are, and, and this became one of three touchstones. But we did not dwell on the whole chapter, which we had read for us today. And, uh, and I think that this is... Uh, in, when we look at it as a whole chapter, it's pretty hard going. It's pretty hard going. It's hard to listen to. It's hard to read. Uh, it doesn't seem to square with the Jesus that we know. Um, and I have been exploring, uh, by necessity, the unexpected Jesus, because I'm writing a devotional book, an Advent devotional book on the unexpected Jesus, and I need 31 entries on the unexpected Jesus. So if anyone invites me to speak this term, you're going to have something about an encounter with the unexpected Jesus. Now, that's just a lesson to those of you who are scholars that you have to um, always um, layer uh, your attention so that if you're working on the book of Matthew in class, you will probably preach from the book of Matthew in church. That's a good use of your time. Uh, and so I hope to model that. Anyway, 
There we are. So I looked at this passage and I said, well, if we have anything here, certainly we have the unexpected Jesus. And uh, when we open this, we see that we encounter a Jesus who is not so meek and mild, who is not so gentle. And this Jesus seems to us to be hard and exacting and confronting, not the Jesus that we tend to imagine. Now, I don't know what kind of Jesus you imagine when you're in your private prayer times. My Jesus is kind of, uh, uh, he kind of takes me as I am, you know. Um, I don't often hear him say, woe to you, hypocrite. Although I have to confess, sometimes if I'm honest, I do. Um, And I think this passage reminds us that Jesus can say those kinds of things to us. And so in this chapter, he's not only seeking to expose hypocrisy, though that's part of it, but this encounter goes a lot deeper than that. In fact, these uh, Pharisees, these teachers of the law, have set themselves up in a way over the people that has actually hindered their walk with God rather than assisted their walk with God, which is what they're supposed to be about. And they have multiplied the number of ways that people can offend God, but they have failed in helping them to actually please God. I don't know how much I need to say about that, or if the parallels for us are obvious. I think in some ways they are. We can be those who lay heavy burdens on people's shoulders, as the passage says. Heavy burdens on their shoulders, expecting them to achieve certain things, to please God in certain ways, to work certain ways in the church, to be certain ways, even when they're not in the church. We give them these burdens, and that contrasts so much with what Jesus talked about, his yoke being easy and his burden being light, which offers rest to those who are heavy laden, doesn't increase their burden. So we have here a picture of church leaders who not only thought more highly of themselves than they ought, but, and who didn't lead people into a closer relationship with God, but who actually then placed additional burdens on people's shoulders that then they could never meet. So, in effect, pushing people further and further and further away from God. I wonder how much the church often does the same thing. So why was Jesus doing this? I mean, we could look at all these individual ones that would take us all day. But I keep thinking, why, why was Jesus doing this? Why was he coming at these leaders so hard? And I think it's because they were the very ones who were tasked with the responsibility to bring people to God. And I think about those of us who are here studying God's word together, uh, learning how to serve him better, being equipped for a lifetime of ministry, whatever that looks like. And I know not everybody is here for the same path, but whatever kind of Christian service that looks like. And the potential sometimes is for us to become like these leaders who want to be seen for doing good things, who want the acclaim, who want uh, sometimes the fancy robes, more than to please God himself. It's to please people rather than to please God. And when we put those things first, what happens is we start to get a disconnect, don't we? If, if, If our main priority is to be concerned about the outward appearance and and to have people's accolades and their respect and so on, but it doesn't line up with what's going on inside, then it doesn't take long before we end up in this very place that the Pharisees found themselves in. So outside, all is great. Inside, what does Jesus say? A mess. A mess. 
So Jesus is not emphasizing so much their conscious insincerity as their failure to perceive that their religious teaching and practice are in fact inconsistent with their desire to please God, which is their professed aim. So it's not so much an attack on their personal piety or a lack of that. He's not saying, you didn't read enough Bible today. It's not what he's attacking them for. He's not saying, you didn't... um, show up for worship on Sunday. That's not what he's at them for. He's saying basically that your insides and your outsides aren't lining up. And we talk about often the inside voice coming out when it shouldn't. There's a place and time for that too. We'll talk about that in a minute. We will talk about that in a minute. But these things are supposed to at least in some ways line up. And the, it's interesting that the woes of this chapter contrast with the blesseds of Matthew 5. You know, that were, that were affirmations of right behavior and right living. And here we have the, the contrasting woes. And these leaders are confronted as being essentially described as bone boxes. Bone boxes. Now, if you've ever seen a bone box, they're quite elaborately decorated. They have nice patterns on the outside. They're, uh, 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 they're actually quite pretty to look at. And these, descri- these uh, Pharisees, these leaders, are being essentially described as bone boxes, flamboyant, self-deceived, and self-satisfied, but, oh, so dead inside. And you know what? The dead can't die for Christ, because they're already dead. The inside for these guys didn't match their outside. And I think it can be the same for us. And I want to encourage you, those of you who are returning students or if you're new students, this is an opportunity to use your time here to explore the insides, to say, what are my motivations? Why am I really here? What are the hurts in my life that come out when I'm stressed? What are the voices that come out when somebody has stepped on my toes and I want to get back at them? What's going on inside of me that needs healing? Because the reality is, is that as you go on into your life and into ministry, if you don't deal with those things, they will come out in very unhelpful ways later on. So if there's something you're trying to avoid in your life, just let this be the time you're going to deal with it. This is the time. It's a safe place to do it. You have community. You have people who want to help you through that process. So that. When you are in full ministry, the inside that has been wounded, yes, but healed and built up in Christ is able to come through with an authenticity that isn't just this image that gets projected for people to consume. Because that's the kind of world we live in. And all of the energy of our culture is going in the direction of saying, I don't care what's inside, show me something pretty on the outside. And you face that pressure more than I did in my generation, more, again, than the generation before. Show me something pretty on the outside. Show me how good you look. Show me how many people worship in your church. Show me something good on Instagram. And that's what I'll give you credit for, rather than the hard work that you did to make sure that your insides are strong and healed and well. And out of that wellness, you can minister a storm in other people's chaos. These guys didn't match the outside. And partly it's because action by action, we build our character. You know, whether in public or in private, what we do is both a revelation and a construction of who we are. 
And in this media-rich world, there's a feeling that we can kind of hide behind that illusion or that anonymity and be different people in different places and times, and our actions are without consequence. So in one place, I'm a ruthless business tycoon, but over here, a gentle lover. Here, I hack into your private information, but there, I would never ask you to tell me something that isn't my business. We have these fights in, in chat rooms online, and then we smile sweetly to one another when we see each other when we pass in the hallway. I can do some calculating things, but I'm a good person at the end of the day. And we can hide behind invented identities online. One person on Insta, another on Facebook. And some places we might not even talk about because nobody knows us there. The French philosopher Jean Baudrillard saw a world where the image of a person became so separated from their identity that the person they were actually faded away and all that was left was this image parading itself around as the reality. And I think he draws this imagery from the silent film The Student of Prague, but he's actually echoing Oscar Wilde's portrait of Dorian Gray. Do you know Dorian Gray? Dorian Gray, who had the picture painted of himself, Oscar Wilde's uh, famous story. A young, beautiful man, full of possibility. He has his portrait painted, and it's so compelling that a senior admirer wants to have it for himself. But Dorian keeps it, and he curses it. And he says, I want all the things, the bad decisions and things in my life to be reflected in this portrait and not on my beauty. And so as he goes through a life of wild living, exploiting others, his portrait changes. It begins to sneer. He moves it into the attic because it's become quite offensive. But he checks on it now and then, and it becomes increasingly hideous. A sign of all the things inside that he'd been doing that were corrupting his character, but that were never seen in the beautiful face that the rest of the world got to see. Of course, what is happening is not only happening in the portrait, it's happening in his heart. Eventually, he realizes something of what he's done. He stabs at the portrait, which is now restored, but he lies dead. You see, the reality is we cannot separate ourselves from our actions. We can't. It's not a surprise that Oscar Wilde himself said this at the end of his life. I forgot that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character, and that therefore what one has done in the secret chamber has someday to cry aloud on the housetops. Like Dorian Gray, each, each action makes a character. Unlike Dorian Gray, it cannot be hidden in the attic. What is done in secret will eventually be seen, which is why we say, don't leave your stuff at the door, bring it in. That's why we say it. This is a place. Let Jesus see it. Let him meet you in it. Let him wrestle with you through it and be transformed for having done that. The notion of a world free of responsibility or of consequences, it just doesn't square with the best of human reasoning, let alone a Christian understanding of ethics. In one Aesop fable, do you remember Aesop? He has some funny stories. Well, the birds are warned by a swallow because the swallow can fly around. He can come in, he can go out. But he warns these small birds on the ground. He says, you, you see those plants growing up? Those are hemp plants. And you might want to eat those, those seeds before they grow. And the reason the swallow was telling them this was because he knew those hemp seeds would grow. They'd be harvested and woven into nets that would be used to catch the small birds. And the birds ignored the warning time and time again until the thing that the swallow warned them of was exactly what happened. Nip it in the bud. Destroy the seeds of destruction or they will destroy you. Don't let it go too long. Don't let it go too far. This is what happened to the Pharisees. Do you think they just woke up one day and said, let's invent a system that will screw up the people we're responsible for? 
Well, of course they didn't. They didn't think at all that they were leading God's flock away from his gentle shepherding. They thought they were being faithful. But one decision by one decision after another decision, the image that they wished to portray, well, they found themselves so far away from God's agenda that they were actually leading people to hell. I don't know about you, but I find that the hardest piece to read in the scripture in that chapter. I mean... The unexpected Jesus, wouldn't Jesus understand that leadership is hard? Doesn't he get that? Doesn't he realize they're only human? They had tried their best, hadn't they? It doesn't seem it. Because here, he wasn't just meeting some dudes who made a mistake. He was meeting religious leaders who had time and time and time again resisted the spirit of God. So that it became not just a failure of ethics, but a failure of formation. Jesus was able to confront the Pharisees because he knew about temptation. He knew. But instead, he challenges their self-interest and basically says, guys, this isn't about you. It's not about you. And yet it is about you. Can it be both at once? Well, religious leadership isn't about titles and reputations. That's the not you that it's not about. It's not about recognition and celebration. And I enjoyed the celebration last week, but that is not what my life is about. And if ever you think it looks like it is, come and challenge me on that. That's not what it's about. It's not about impressing people with how holy we are to be here in seminary or being good to pick up a homeless person off the street. It's about daily taking up our cross, dying to ourselves and our desires, the things that we want that create that outside facade that other people will will bow to. And it's about dying to ourselves and following him. So I ask you this morning, what are the agendas that God might be asking you to lay down? When you're here at the edge of this new year, is it possible that as leaders, some of us are placing impossible burdens on people that keep them from coming to Christ? Is it possible that our own ideas of what a good Christian life or good Christian worship or a good church looks like are preventing people from actually encountering a living God who is already everywhere in the world? And I worry deeply that we are too often our own worst enemy. We blame the world for pushing us to the margins when we're quite good at doing it ourselves. In my experience of ministry and leadership over these past 20 or 30 years, the world hasn't been the biggest obstacle to the gospel in my experience. And I hate to say it, but Christians have been just that far too often. And it makes me shudder to read those words. You worked hard to get one convert in order to lead them to hell. He will hold the leaders responsible. That's why we got to sort our stuff. Because he will hold us responsible at the end of the day. And so this passage then leads into the next action of the Pharisees to begin the events that will lead to Jesus' arrest and his death. And as if to highlight how far away they are from recognizing what God's presence might look like in their midst, even though Jesus gives them a pretty strong hint. So my invitation to you as we begin this term is to say, you've come here to die. How's that for a welcome? And still that's what Jesus invites us to do. Especially those who are leaders or seek to be leaders. What are we here for? What do we think we've come here for? It's not that. It's not that. You've come to die. To 
die to yourself to lay down your theological agendas, your hurts, your past injuries, legitimate though they are, and not to lay them down lightly, but to begin that process of wrestling through. What do you think you've come here for? To bring a theological agenda, to fix everyone's behavior? Have you brought your ideas about a big church leader or the best servant ever? You've come to die. What do we need to lay down? What do we need to lay down? Because that's what came next for Jesus. After he criticized the leadership of the Pharisees, he surrendered his life to death, even death on a cross, so that even they, even they would live. As we study here, share community here, learn to be formed here, action by action, and learn word by word, can we keep each other accountable to the presence and power of the Holy Spirit? Because he is here. This is a work he wants to do in us. Not because he hates us, not because he's saying woe to you, but because of his love for us. He wants us to be people who go to the ends of the earth for a convert and lead them straight to Jesus' feet. Let us be a community of prayer then, one for another. Let's find each other through the building, through the day, and pray for each other. Let's be that place and a listening place, a place of welcome and a place of challenge. And let's have open doors that lead us from here to the campus and from the campus in. Let us be that place. Because you see, the encounter with the Pharisees didn't bring Jesus pleasure. His desire was not denouncement and destruction. And from here he goes on then to show his loving heart for them. How I have longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. An image we see several times in the Old Testament, and including Isaiah. You can ask Danny all about that, Isaiah and Matthew and all of that. Um, this is a contrast with what was happening in Jerusalem. It was, it was a bit of a mess. And he's saying, Jerusalem, not, not, he wasn't talking about the buildings. He was talking about them. He was talking about them. I've longed to gather you as a hen. Gathers her chicks under their wings. For them, it's a place of safety, a direction of purpose, a single direction. But what does this mean for God? I don't know about you, but when I have my family under my wings, whether it's friends, family, my place of safety, there's nothing better. There's nothing better. What does it mean for God to gather? That's his true desire. His true desire is reconciliation. But he doesn't force himself. Instead, he dies. And now that's surprising. How much more surprised must the Pharisees have been three days later? 